and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through this podcast, we would take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode, entitled What Makes a Good Mother, in quotes, is part of our series devoted to the September 2020 issue on sex and reproduction. We hope you excuse our extremely long delay in putting out a matching podcast, but we hope it's worth it. I'm your host, Kelsey Castle, a third year PhD student in the Epidemiology and Microbial Diseases Department. And your co-host is Victoria Harris. Hi, I'm Victoria Harris. I study reproductive ecology within anthropology and in which we focus on the evolutionary aspect of reproduction. So one of the key concepts in the field of study is that of trade-offs, how time and energy are finite resources that need to be allocated across the lifetime and decisions need to be made not consciously in terms of where they are spent. So while pregnancy and breastfeeding are very expensive in terms of both time and energy, mothers will want to support the survival of their offsprings and therefore will invest as many resources as needed in successful reproduction. So unfortunately, we have added to this stress of reproduction through cultural expectations of what is deemed good or bad in terms of mother or infant behavior. And those are what we're going to focus on throughout this podcast episode. So pregnancy comes with extreme stresses that doesn't mean that you're a bad mom. A bad mom is a societal construct and many times totally counterintuitive to how women have developed over the course of evolution. And there's a lot of do's and don'ts, cans and can'ts regarding motherhood and not a lot of encouragement for what you're naturally inclined to do. So we're here to spill the science on reproduction, pregnancy and motherhood over the next hour. So as a caveat, um, I am not or have never been pregnant or a mother, and uh, Vicky has not either. So Mm -hmm. all of these are coming from, from A, the fact that Vicky has extensive research experience in it, and B, that I have done a bit of Googling to support um, some of her research (laughs) experience. We're just here to tell you the science and to make everybody feel better about their pregnancies. So one of the first things that is always an issue with pregnancy is your diet and what you can and can't eat and what you should and shouldn't eat and what's to be avoided and how much coffee you can drink. And it just seems to be rules after rules after rules of what you can consume and can't consume. And mostly it comes down to avoiding chances of food poisoning. So such as not fully cooking your egg or eating deli meats or having sushi with uncooked fish. Those mostly come down to avoiding the risk of food poisoning, which does have severe consequences during pregnancy if you were to have it. But then there's also a lot of cultural issues around it, and especially to do with taking dietary supplements. So in the UK and America, it's become a norm that all mothers should take prenatal supplements during pregnancy, and if possible, beforehand. So in the US, approximately half of all pregnancies are unplanned. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to take prenatal vitamins before you start getting pregnant. And this is more important with stuff such as folic acid and iodine, which you don't naturally get much of in your diet naturally through what we eat every day and have really important implications on fetal development. Why um, why is folic acid so critical to pregnancy? That's the one that I've heard about the most. So it's difficult to get adequate amounts of folic acid from food alone, which is why it's highly recommended to supplement. It's not one that okay. we can easily get from our diet. I think it's to do with the soil and not being able to get enough in the food that we're growing anymore. So now it's recommended to take 400 micrograms of folic acid every day from before pregnancy until 12 weeks of pregnancy because it lowers the risk of neural tube defects in infants, which is fatal. What they do, and there's this giant um, public health 
campaign that was so successful in which wheat is now fortified in many countries with folic acid to help ease this risk, especially for those who are not actively trying to get pregnant and therefore miss the vital time frame of fetal development. For example, as I said, half of all pregnancies in the USA are unplanned. So you're not going to have started taking this folic acid beforehand. But apart from that, we then, these are more important pre-conception up until the first month. And then we continue to take these prenatal supplements and mothers can sometimes guilt each other for not taking them, such as if you have severe morning sickness and taking these prenatals causes you to throw up, a lot of mothers then won't say that they're no longer taking them because of fear of guilt or shame from other mothers. But when you look at the guidelines, for example, the National Health System in the UK, the NHS, says that it can all be gained through a balanced diet, despite this cultural push to take your prenatal supplements. So we have the American Dietetic Association, the Institute of Medicine, and the NHS all saying that you only need to keep taking these multivitamins and supplements if you aren't able to maintain a balanced diet, or if you're having multiple babies, if you have anemia, you are a drug or alcohol user, or if you follow a vegan diet. Otherwise, you should be able to be getting them from what you're eating anyway. But we have this stigma around, are you still taking your supplements? Are you getting the best start for your infant? And it's these are where we then start this slippery train towards the end of, are you a good mother? So one of the ways that it is important to have supplements is if, as a mother, you drink alcohol, which, as we have seen over the course of generations, the recommendations have changed dramatically. So... Um... The CDC currently recommends no alcohol use at any stage during pregnancy. Um, and this is, you know, kind of well known at this point in time, because if you buy any alcohol or see anything that it's blatantly telling you not to take it if you're pregnant. And there's always a concern among women, I think, in general, that if you become accidentally pregnant and then you're backtracking and trying to think about when the last time you had a drink was and how that correlates to when maybe you got pregnant and how long you had been accidentally drinking while you're pregnant. And this is all of concern because of something called fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, I learned that it's actually part of a spectrum called fetal alcohol syndrome spectrum disorders. This can include differences like having facial or height and weight differences or um, the kind of worst side of the spectrum where you have neurological uh, differences from your peers. I thought, I like erroneously thought that fetal alcohol syndrome wasn't as common anymore, but I checked in a recent study estimated that maybe six to 11 per 1,000 children born in the U.S. each year have fetal alcohol syndrome. And when you consider the spectrum disorders for fetal alcohol syndrome, this can range closer to 24 to 48 children per 1,000 children, which is between two and 4%. So, so this kind of brought me to the thought of, well, for hundreds of years, the safest liquid to drink wasn't water because water was gross. Or if you were living in London in the 1700s and trying to drink out of the Thames, it was the same place that you were pouring all your waste in. And that's all you were going to get cholera. You were going to get some other really horrible sickness. So it was worse off for you to drink tainted water back then than it was for you to drink beer in some cases, if you could kind of regulate how much beer you had and if it was lower alcohol concentration in that beer. So this was definitely... Um, like a trade-off at the time, but an unknown trade-off, given that it wasn't fully known that drinking heavily during pregnancy could have a lot of health issues for your unborn child. So I tried to figure out when it became known that drinking was associated with childhood uh, developmental issues. So it appears that the awareness of the negative effects on drinking can be traced back like to biblical times. It's assumed, and this is kind of a doesn't fully account for the lag and the fact that certain portions of the Bible were written well after the biblical events took place. It's kind of mentioned in these older um, writings and paintings because they will show 
drawings of women holding children that look suspiciously like what we now know is fetal alcohol syndrome. The first truly recorded instance of the association being made is by the College of Physicians in London in 1725, where they pointed out that alcohol had effects on children and pregnancy and during the time period after birth. And this was uh, all taking place during something called the gin epidemic. So I had no idea that there is a gin epidemic. And as somebody who studies epidemics, I felt kind of bad about that. But there's quite a lot of information on it. Um, it's also considered the gin craze. And it was a time when in the late 1600s, the cost of gin had dropped extremely low so that it was be well below the cost of beer and ale. By 1700, the estimated intake of gin was 1.25 million gallons in England and Wales, which then increased to 7 million gallons in the next 50 years. And wow. this was compared to beer consumption, which was stable around 3 million gallons per year among the residents of the area. This was a huge increase in the consumption of gin, especially given how the price continued to drop. It was blamed for the rise in crime and poverty in London, rather than this extremely wide socioeconomic gap that was growing in London at the time. So like at the time they were saying, oh, you know, all this crime and poverty is due to the fact that you're drinking, not that there's this massive gap in wealth and that would drive people to drink if they don't have a quality of life. Unfortunately, certain things were used to adulterate the gin that was brewed, like sulfur, acid, and turpentine. So this also made the gin craze even more unsafe for the people that were drinking heavily. Uh, to continue on that, um, in 1899, a researcher did note that children born to women who suffered from alcoholism had a higher mortality rate compared to those family members who didn't drink and had children. A year later, a, re a researcher realized that the placenta didn't prevent alcohol from reaching the fetus when the mother drank. So it seems that for a while, people thought that maybe alcohol could influence a child if it couldn't cross the placental barrier. We now know that's not true. Um, between the 30s and 50s, there was a massive amount of disagreement, both in the medical realm and just in general society, over how alcohol could affect the unborn child. There was an unpublished thesis in 1957 that addressed face malformations associated with alcoholic mothers, but fetal alcohol syndrome disorders didn't really come about for a couple more years. The term wasn't coined until the 70s, and then in 1977, the FDA released their statement like formally saying that you should not drink alcohol during pregnancy. So this was before I was born in the early 90s, but that means that in the time period that most of our parents were born and their parents it's were born. how recent that is. Yeah, that they were, our grandmothers were not, if they did drink during the pregnancy, that wasn't choice that they made on purpose. That was what was known at the time. And then um, it also means that our parents, like my mother grew up, at a time where her mother could have drank during her pregnancy and not thought anything of it. But then she was, you know, had this new concept of what it was to be a good mother and to not. So for that to happen within two generations is pretty stark. Two generations compared to the hundreds of years that women had been drinking during pregnancy, thinking that it was safer than drinking unclean water. This is something that has kind of shifted in the past like I guess 100 years is the realization of drinking and then formally denouncing drinking altogether. Um, but something that's been a little bit more loosey-goosey has been exercise recommendations. So just like off the bat, I've taken like the spin exercise classes where you're riding a bike. And when I took them in my early 20s, they would go around the room and ask everyone in the room, like, are you, are you positive that you're not pregnant before you take this class? Because they didn't want pregnant women or even accidentally pregnant women. Like they didn't want you riding a bike or doing these heavy exertion exercises on a bike. But now I think the last time I took a spin class was like two years ago. And the instructor was like six months pregnant going full force on the bicycle. So that's definitely changed. Like even small recommendations regarding spin classes and biking while pregnant have slowly changed. I mean, it was um, in the movie Sex in the City. One of the characters, I really should know it, Charlotte, where she was scared of exercising because she'd been told it was damaging. And they were like, you've been a runner for your whole life. You should carry on with it. And it shows her coming to the realization that she can still exercise and that it is good for her. For like most of the 1900s, it was like, oh my God, you're pregnant. You need to sit. Well, they but had like resting rooms where they, they literally would just be in bed 
and have all of their needs taken care of the, um, for them by like servants or family members. And they were not allowed to move. And these are for, and when we're talking about this, we are generally talking about uncomplicated pregnancies here where exercise is recommended. So um, currently the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that for all uncomplicated pregnancies that you should be exercising during your entire pregnancy if you can. Um, there are obviously many reasons for why you have a pregnancy that won't allow you to do that. But in general, it's highly recommended at this point in time that you keep up physical activity, both to prevent um, things like gestational diabetes. It can also help prevent the risk of cesarean birth or operative vaginal delivery and can improve your postpartum recovery time, which is, I think everybody wants to have a shorter recovery time from giving birth. So from it went from thinking that the best way to give birth is to kind of relax your whole pregnancy or take it as easy as you can to like, you should kind of go about your regular physical activity regime so that you get back to that level after you give birth and you can have the easiest birth possible. I did find a 1988 survey, which indicated that 42% of the women at that time during the survey were exercising during pregnancy. And I thought, oh, well, I'll find a survey that's more recent that shows that maybe exercise during pregnancy has increased. Couldn't find that. <laughs> the most recent study I found was from 2015. And I'm sure that there's more studies since then that were just harder for me to find. But this indicated that only 20% of participants indicated that they were exercising during their pregnancy. And this number goes down when you're counting how many people actually exercise for the full extent of their pregnancy. So it seems like it's still um, challenging for whatever reason to either exercise during pregnancy or encourage exercise during pregnancy. And when we're on the note of what makes a good mother, the point isn't to judge somebody for choosing not to exercise, but to promote that it is a safe activity if you have an uncomplicated pregnancy and you've talked about it with your physician and they have indicated that it should be safe for you, right? If you think it's best for you to exercise during pregnancy, then you should feel comfortable doing exercises that you enjoy and that suit your pregnancy. The only thing I was going to mention was, I can splice this in somewhere, mm -hmm. but um, the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology has this page called physical activity and exercise during pregnancy in the postpartum period. And it's from the ACOG committee opinion. It's available online and it just has hundreds of recommendations with tons of links to different things. And it can really help you sort through what type of exercise you want to be doing for different types of people. There's even a section for exercises for like, like extreme elite athletes, like what type of exercise you can continue then. Um, exercises for people who have like occupational a lot of occupational type of lifting. Like it really just goes through um, all these different types of things to be concerned about. It even has little diagrams of pregnant women and how much they can lift at each time of their pregnancy. It's kind of cute. I love this. And then it also gives you very clear uh, indications for what you need to be concerned about if you're exercising while pregnant. And some of them are kind of similar, like you don't want to be dizzy or have a headache or chest pain while you're um, while you're working out in any case. But then there's more issues if you're pregnant, uh, things to look out for. Now they have all of these like bump to baby exercise classes that are made specifically for pregnant women. So such as yoga classes where they don't do any inversions or stomach positions and aerobic classes where they work on things like your pelvic floor and they're made specifically for pregnant women. And they create this like community feel of I'm exercising, but in a safe way with other people who I can network with. And it creates like a support group for you while you're going through it. Cause people then tend to stay with these people who they're doing this bump to baby class with. And then when they have the baby, there's postnatal exercise classes that they can go to. And it's just more of like a way of making friends in your new peer group as a mother. So then speaking of support groups and community feel, there's this big dichotomy with like mom groups and online groups and Facebook groups and mom's net and all of those bulletin board participation groups that can either be 
very good for a mother or very bad for a mother. So while the positives can be things like an online support and a community feeling. So there was a study in 1998 that found that there was a significant relationship between participation in these bulletin board style groups and mom groups with decreases in parenting stress. And they also found that young mothers who accessed these bulletin boards frequently were more likely to develop a stronger sense of belonging to a community. And given that young mothers are often the ones that report high levels of stress and sense of isolation, this is really encouraging. So we've got these support systems and these networks and a place to ask questions and not feel like you're alone in this. And a study that a systematic scoping review in 2020 that looked into all papers produced on online peer support and the well-being of mothers supported this in that they found that mothers who felt supported mainly used these groups for informational and emotional support and to gain this sense of connection with other mothers. However, when you then <laughs> the get big to the, however, <laughs> however, when you get to these to the bad side of these groups, online mothers can tend to be very judgy. They'll only put the best parts of themselves forward. So if you're baking with your child, you're not going to show the mess and the eggshell and like the tantrum that happened halfway through. You're just going to show a picture of a smiling child holding a spoon with cake mix. And this contributes to the feeling of other people feeling like a bad mom. They see these perfect moms. They put small issues out on this bulletin board and get attacked by other moms saying, you can't do this. You're putting your child in danger. You're a terrible mother. And a study in 2019 that explored women's experiences of using online support groups for breastfeeding in the United Kingdom found that while the positive sides were that they were reassuring and empathetic and available around the clock, they were less daunting than going to a face-to-face group, many of them had such bad negative experiences such as judgment for using formula or polarized debates going on and a lack of regulation, meaning that all this unhelpful information was sometimes being posted and women tended to get lost trying to keep up with it and instead spiraled into thinking that they were the problem. So while they can be good and they can be supportive, and especially now during the times that we're in, they can create a sense of community that women are lacking we have to be mindful of the negative consequences of feeling judged and feeling like that you're a bad mom and that other people are doing better than you. So now Vicki and I are going to take a break to interview our moms. Our moms both had us in the early 90s and they were raised by moms who had them in the early 60s or mid 60s. So we thought they would be a great supplement to the facts that we're providing in case you wanted some anecdotal evidence that the pressure placed on moms to be a good mom has definitely increased over time. And the standards for pregnancy have changed quickly and and likely will continue to change. So we're first going to start with Vicki discussing pregnancy-related expectations with her mom. And then we're going to switch over to my mom and her thoughts. So... Mummy, I have a few questions for you about your pregnancies with me and Gina. When you were pregnant, what were the guidelines on what you should and shouldn't eat? Right. Well, the guidelines what you should eat was healthy eating. Just have a healthy, normal diet. Fruit, veg, lean meat, but everything had to be cooked properly. So the meat, you couldn't have rare steak you had to have no blood in the meat. You had okay, to cook so that's all. still today. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when I was pregnant with you, which it was 1990, that was the first salmonella scare. So oh, we, interesting. So we had to have salmonella tests and we weren't allowed to have any products like mayonnaise that had raw egg in it. We had to make sure we couldn't have dippy eggs. We had to make sure that eggs were hard boiled or fried. And Just to clarify, dippy eggs is a UK term. That just means you can't have it 
soft boiled. Yes. Um, so on you, we had the salmonella. The, you weren't allowed the eggs. Um, all the meat had to be cooked pro- properly. No uh, mayonnaise. You weren't allowed cream cheese for some reason or soft cheese. There was some bacteria in cream cheese and soft cheese that you weren't supposed to have. Okay, because now you're allowed cream cheese, but you still can't have soft cheese with a rind. So brie, Uh, camembert, I think those are the only two. Like those kind of, if it's got a rind or if it's got a mold in it. So like blue cheese, you can't eat. But soft you wouldn't um, allow blue cheese, no. Cream cheese is back on. Yeah. Then two years later, when I had Georgina, it was still healthy eating, cook everything properly. Oh, sorry, on you, liver was, you were supposed to have liver, broccoli, spinach. You were meant to eat liver? The, on you, but then one, two years later when it came round to Georgina, three months into the pregnancy, when I was eating liver twice a week because I loved liver, then they said, oh my goodness, you're not allowed to have liver. Yeah, liver and is it, an absolute it, no-go. And now well, it was two years later, and they added pate as well. You weren't allowed pate because obviously it's liver liver based. But obviously, fruits, veg, lean meat, and, so and a healthy balanced a diet. healthy balanced diet. Now, I had already joined Slimming Club because I was already overweight, so I had to go to the doctor and ask permission to carry on slimming or controlling my weight during my pregnancy. And because fortunately I saw the young boy who was into all the health stuff, not the old doctor, he gave me a letter to say that I was allowed to control my weight during my pregnancy. And that's what I did. And during my first pregnancy with you, I only gained one stone. And then talking about like maintaining a healthy diet, were there recommendations for taking any prenatal vitamins? And was this something that you talked about with other mothers? Uh, We were encouraged to take folic acid before you got pregnant, but that was only obviously if you were planning it, you were supposed to take folic acid for 12 weeks in the run-up to conception. But obviously if you didn't plan it properly, you didn't know you'd already conceived. As a matter of course, everybody was prescribed iron tablets. Mm. And it already had really good iron. Mm. So on Georgina, even though I was prescribed them, I didn't take them. And they kept saying, oh, good, good, good girl. You, you're taking your iron tablets. And, and I just had no naturally high iron in my body anyway. Yes, yes, taking them every week, every day, yes. And I wasn't. Um, and was exercise encouraged by healthcare providers during pregnancy? Was there like a message that was given to mothers? Yeah. The main message was to carry on being as active as you could and as active as active as you already were. So my problem was I did three aerobic classes a week and I didn't think it was safe to be jumping up and down and dancing and, and everything, being pregnant. And they said no. And the doctor actually showed me, he got the coffee jar with an egg inside it. So you put an egg inside the coffee jar, fill it with water, shake it, and it, the, the, the egg doesn't hit the sides of the wall of the glass because it's protected. So he was basically telling me, that's what your baby is like in your tummy. You will not harm it by carrying on with your normal activities until you feel uncomfortable not to. Were there any classes that were specifically pregnancy exercise classes? Like now we have bump to baby yoga and we have baby aerobics and all of these things. No, nothing like that. There's a push. And also, so there's a push towards... You need to like take this exercise classes that are meant to be more gentle for babies. So like pregnancy yoga is great. You don't do any laying on your front. You don't do any inversions, things that would damage the pregnancy. Yes. But now like if you're not taking baby exercise classes, everyone's like, well, why? You should be doing these. Like you get judged for not doing them. Yes. No, there was nothing like that then. In fact, I was probably frowned on because I was pregnant doing aerobics. People would say, oh, are you all right to be doing this? But I had I, I checked out with, again with the same young doctor, this new doctor that was in the surgery. So he was up with any of the newer for the 90s. And um, he said, no, perfectly wasted. You should be carrying on. And was it recommended to have zero alcohol consumption like it is today yes. during pregnancy. Yes, it, it was quite new then, 
But yes, as soon as you found out you were pregnant, you were told you well, one drink a week, maybe with you know half a glass of wine or something with a meal. But mostly, most people, my friends, um, abstained totally. As soon as you found out you're pregnant, you stopped drinking. Okay. And did you know anyone who kept drinking? Yes, the the lady next door who was the 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 the, the Mars, Mars bar Mars. Mars bar lady. She carried on drinking. Interesting. Okay, and now the big question. My favorite was breastfeeding encouraged by healthcare, and yes. was it also encouraged by the public? Yes, to the first question. It was definitely encouraged by healthcare. We were encouraged in the antenatal classes and in the hospital. The nurses were all full on helping you to, to the, the midwives were helping you to latch on and everything and, and give you loads of advice with that. And the midwives when they came out and the health visitors when they came out afterwards. Publicly, not so much. Um, people did, the, the, there was two main camps. It was either against or the four, really, which is obviously the same today. Okay. But Yes. Um well, even family members weren't uh, wanted me to leave the room in my own home for them because they were uncomfortable with me breastfeeding and sat behind a newspaper whilst I, are you finished yet? Are you finished yet? <laughs> Reading the newspaper. But out in public, oh, it, it, was, it, it was touch and go. I think I would say I had out of the, my, my main memories, I've got four bad memories and one good memory from being out in public breastfeeding. Okay, and did it change between me and Gina, given like you had me in 1990 and Gina in 1992? Not an awful lot. I think they did start, a few of the service stations and bigger stores did start getting um, the little rooms, a specific room. It was still attached to the toilet rather than being in a separate area. There was still, there was just a bigger cubicle that you could go in. I did breastfeed more in public with your sister than I did with you because I think I got braver as well. I just didn't take the... Criticism? But yes, the criticism and the and the aggro in a sense. I, I was more, you know, this this is what I'm doing. This is natural. I'm, you know, like, oh. Sorry, just been attacked by a cat. <laughs> I didn't know he was behind me. He just jumped on me. <laughs> He's like, no more booby stories. Okay, no. thank you so much. That is great. I'm You're going welcome. to stop. Send to cloud. Yay. Yes. So you were born in the early 60s, right? And then you gave birth to me in the early 90s. And then Jimmy was born two years later. So, yeah, everything that you're going to say, I guess, is relevant to what you were raised with and what you learned during your pregnancy at that time, like as a white middle class woman on the East Coast. Um, So what I guess the first thing was, are there any differences that you know of now that you were told during your pregnancy or birth that have definitively changed? So when you were born, you were the oldest, so you were the first. Um, They kind of recommended breastfeeding, but it wasn't like a big push for it. It was just theoretically it was better. You know, you'd be close to the baby and different things, but it wasn't like, oh, there's just a huge amount of, of differences that I remember them telling, you know, reading about or whatever. And, but then since then, you know, I feel like now there's, you know, there's like all these advantages to it. You know, it's like almost terrible if you didn't breastfeed, like you, I would think people who don't at this point would feel guilty about it. And I don't remember, I remember that some people did at the, at your age, you know, at the time that you were born. But I don't remember it being like, you know, super recommended. Did they give you, did the doctor give you any advice about that when you said, like, it sounds more like here it was a choice and the doctor was like, okay, great. You've made your choice kind of thing. Like, yeah, I just said, oh, I didn't want to breastfeed. And she said, fine. You know, it was like, she didn't in any way try to convince me to do it. Just like, oh, that's fine. Okay. Did she 
give you anything when you weren't breastfeeding? So when you were born, when I said I didn't want to breastfeed, she said, here, take these pills. Um, it'll keep your milk from coming in so you won't be so uncomfortable. So then two years later, Jimmy was born and I asked about, you know, the pills and she says, oh, we don't give those out anymore. I don't know what they were. You don't remember um, the name? No. I'll see if I can but look I, them up for it. I haven't yet. I thought it was interesting. It was only two years later that she's like, no, we don't, we don't do that. So I had a very interesting chat with my mom. So I was born in 93 and Jimmy was born in 95. And she chose not to breastfeed for either of us. And her physician was totally fine with that and didn't seem to give any pushback, which might be different today, depending on who your physician is. And when I was born in 93, her physician gave her medicine, like a prescription medicine to take so that she would stop lactating. Oh, wow. Like quicker than you would normally, I guess. But in 95, when she went to the doctors, like after giving birth and was like, oh, I'm, I'm not breastfeeding. Can I have the medication again? They're like, oh, we do not give that to mothers anymore. So my mom always found that very weird and concerning because <laughs> within two years, right, they had this massive turnaround on a drug, but she cannot for the life of her remember what the medicine is called. So I took it upon myself to like wildly Google thing. <laughs> oh. see drugs <laughs> I know see if I could guess which drug was kind of on the market in 93 and then taken off the market so there's a couple different drugs that are given to suppress lactation although I think they were, it was more commonly given when breastfeeding wasn't being as promoted and then there's a number of drugs that suppress lactation as an adverse effect so then the drug might be originally given for Parkinson's or something else. And then they're given to moms because it'll also help. Oh, because so, of the, like, because of the side effect. Mm -hmm. So I think that might also be part of the problem is that these drugs aren't, aren't made for that. So the drug that I think might be related, one is called bromocryptine, B-R-O-M-O-C-R-I-P-T-I-N-E. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Is a, It's a dopamine receptor agonist, and it mimics some of the actions of dopamine um, and because dopamine regulates the release of prolactin, which controls lactation. So this is like a long, long chain of events here. Um, but the end being, it suppresses milk production. So I think this might have been the one that my mom was on in 93 and taken off because by 95, there was a lot of reports of adverse events for it. Oh. So it says now in a, an update by the NIH, it says bromocryptine is usually not used during breastfeeding because it suppresses lactation. Makes sense. The indication of lactation suppression has been withdrawn in the U.S. and discouraged in other countries because it increases the risk of maternal stroke, seizures, cardiovascular disorders, including heart attack, death, and possibly psychosis. Wow. All yeah. the things you want to give to a new mother. So a low dose of 2.5 milligrams once daily has been used for three days to decrease overproduction of milk. It seems like they're only giving these short doses for women who have overproduction of milk. So this is a review article, and it starts off with saying, in 1993, the use of bromocryptine for suppression of postpartum lactation drew widespread attention with regard to its suspicion to cause cardiovascular and cerebrovascular adverse events, mainly acute heart attack and stroke. The FDA published its intention to withdraw the product from the market because the benefit-risk ratio for the treatment of postpartum lactation was considered unacceptable, which is a good way to phrase that. Like, it, yeah. it should be unacceptable for new mothers to have any of these negative effects. The FDA has a voluntary reporting system where physicians can report like that their patient has had an adverse event while on the drug. So it's not the same as a full case study or a cohort study. But it's usually how the FDA, FDA originally figures out that something might be up if it hasn't come up in the clinical trials. And this is true for a lot of um, different adverse events that we learn about. So this decision was based data received by the FDA. So all the license holders in the U.S. have voluntarily withdrawn the indication of bromocryptine for this use by 1995. 
And the authors of this article note that this seems to be withdrawn out of an overabundance of caution because the number of adverse events has been pretty rare. But their concern is like, this is rare and unexpected in a group of women who you do not want to be having these adverse events, yeah. right? They're young of childbearing age and just had a child. Um, so the authors of this study were trying to estimate their risk in the Netherlands. Between 1986 and 1992, they had about 2,500 patients who got a prescription for bromocryptine in the Netherlands. They were exposed to a dose, a daily dose of five milligrams for a medium period of 15 days, which is notably larger than what I was just mentioning for people who have hyperlactation, which was just a really small dose for three days. Mm -hmm. um, so this was their average, which is sounds on par with what my mom was mentioning because she said she was taking it for a little while. Between 1990 and 1992, the incidence of women taking it had totally halved from six courses per 1,000 women to three courses per 1,000 women. So they noted a greater incidence of pregnancy hypertension in the two-month period prior to initiation of bromocryptine therapy, which is why they're saying maybe this relationship is, isn't based on taking the drug. It was you had an underlying higher risk for cardiovascular events or cerebrovascular events. In this study, none of the women ages 15 to 44 were hospitalized for ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, or hypertension while on bromocryptine. However, they did have higher incidence rates of hypertension and cerebrovascular disease during the two-month period prior to initiation of the therapy. Wow. So it could be a sample issue. But by this point, the drug had already been taken off the market in the U.S., and I doubt that the U.S. was going to go back to it. And judging by what's happened in the past 27 years, they have not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also curious how it works since the drug originally is an agonist for dopamine receptors, if that affects like postpartum depression too. That's Maybe what there's... I was wondering. And like yeah. there's enough going on with postpartum depression and like not feeling good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And also like the entire debate around whether you breastfeed or bottle feed or this whole fed is best that we just do not have time to go into in this podcast because that could be a podcast on its own. But if yeah. you're already feelings of, am I making the right decision? Should I be breastfeeding? I don't want to breastfeed. Like I'm now going to take this drug to stop my milk production because it hurts if you leave your milk production going and you, you decide to go to the bottle straight away. How much this must all add into this feeling of being a bad mum to then take something that might have an impact on postnatal depression even further? We're not yeah. doing mothers any good here. Um, I can't open the article because it's a New York Times article, but the Times article from August 17th, 1994 is FDA is sued on drug to dry mother's milk. And it starts with a health advocacy group is suing the government to force it to take action against a drug that suppresses lactation after childbirth. The group contends that the drug is killing and disabling healthy women and that the government is ignoring the problem. Wow, strong line. And they allege that at least 19 women have died and many others have suffered strokes, heart attacks, and seizures after taking Parlodel since the FDA began wrestling with the drug in 1989. And then the FDA records show that 32 women have died as a result of taking Parlodel since 1980. Um, so that was, yeah, my, my little story. One thing that's changed a lot is childbirth itself. Birth in the United States has changed a lot with a shift in the 19th century from predominantly home birth settings with local midwives attending towards birth being situated in a hospital setting and the introduction of what we call obstetrical science. So this shift saw the authority of birth moving from the birthing woman herself being in charge over to doctors and medical specialists being the one who know about birth. And while this has led to amazing advances in childbirth technologies and decreases in mortality rates. It has also introduced a lot of negative connotations for women in terms of choices they make regarding delivery of their babies. For example, do I use pain medication or not? 
Where do I choose to give birth? Home or hospital? How do I choose to give birth? Vaginal versus C-section. And like pain medication use in childbirth is such a personal choice and can be subjected to so much judgment from women who made different choices. And additionally, women who choose not to use um, pain medication and then change their minds during the childbirth can even place blame on themselves and feel like they're now a bad mother because they went in with this idea that they were going to have this natural, like pain-free medication birth and all of those plans got flipped on their head and they gave in. And now they feel guilty as if they didn't give their child the best start in life because we have such of this rhetoric around being a good mother and what is a good birth. Yeah, because in 2019, there was a systematic review of pain relief methods and women reported mixed experiences of different pain relief methods. And one of the things similar to what your mom said, that pharmaceutical methods, while they can reduce pain, they can have negative side effects like what your mom got. And then non-pharmaceutical methods such as meditation, relaxation, massage, stuff like that, while they may not reduce labor pain, they can actually facilitate bonding with the professionals and the birth supporters such as partners or doulas and can just make you feel more relaxed and then the pain doesn't feel as overwhelming. So it was interesting in this review, like how people viewed pain. And pain medication has such a cool history. So like um, pharmaceutical pain medications in childbirth has swayed in popularity throughout history in three kind of main waves. So the first wave was in the 19th century where the three popular drugs were ether, chloroform, and nitrous um, oxide. And access to pain relief was demanded by feminist activities as a woman's right. Like it's our right to have pain medication. Yeah. One of these was chloroform, guys. Come on. <laughs> then and it was all made popular by Queen Victoria, who said that she had it during her birth and then her daughter had it during her birth. So it was kind of seen as the, the thing that you were meant to do. Then the second wave in the 1960s with the popularization of epidurals, where feminists then took the opposite position in which they called for a return to non-medicalized, female-controlled, natural approaches to childbirth where the woman was in control. Because the problem with an epidural is that you can't move. So they saw it as taking away all control from the woman. Then the third wave in the 1990s switched gears again, and feminists began advocating for a woman's right to choose if she wanted a technological pain-free birth, if that was her desire. So it kind of went from being like, we want the right to choose towards, no, we don't want you to interfere with our birth back to, you know what? No, we want the right to choose if I want to have yeah. a free um, technological birth or if I want to have a natural, more holistic birth. And it's I think so much guilt from others because we then put it into these two camps of you either have a natural birth or you have a technological birth. Why, why do we have to fight? It's tricky because like, I think my mom's case wasn't unique in that you, right. You're making all these decisions before you have birth and you have no idea how your birth is going to go. Yep. My mom was putting all this pressure on herself to have this more natural birth because she's worried about these side effects and I think it's reasonable to say that you have to go into it and play it by year, but that's not how it's being framed, right? People are going into it with these expectations because you have nine months to think about your birth. (laughs) You're just sitting around worrying about it when you could go into it and it could, you know, be a lot harder than you were the physician thought it would be, or, or maybe be easier than you were the physician thought it would be. And easy is obviously relative because there's no way that birth is easy by any means. Did you see when you were looking at the 19th century birth, um, Twilight Sleep? Oh gosh, yes. I did. I wondered if to speak about this or not, because again, I think that this could be a whole topic on its own. They used to put the mother to sleep and then she'd wake up and she'd have a baby. And they thought that this was fantastic and that this was the cool new thing. And this is how childbirth was going to happen. And then it wasn't until later that they realized that this was horrendous. 
Yeah, I researching this for a YJBM article on medicinal plants because it's um, it's actually an injection of morphine and sco scopalamine, which are both derivatives of plant medicine. Back when um, they were using a lot of straight derivatives of plant medicine before they were making synthetic derivatives, and then you would have like twilight sleep babies mm-hmm. with how they would refer to them, which also seemed a little bit unusual. And then the men that were promoting it were like, "Oh, this was part of the the plan to have more German babies and build up the empire because they're like women will have more babies if they can't remember how painful it was. We can build up our army <laughs> if they never remember how much pain they're going through during their birth." <laughs> Because oh, yeah, the babies came out drugged up to the nines as well. So then it had implications on breastfeeding because both the baby and the mother weren't fully conscious for the first, what was it, like 24 to 48 hours after birth? I think the other thing was it was putting them, it was creating amnesia, but it wasn't removing the pain in the same way that mm-hmm. epidurals remove it. So the women were in severe, severe pain and they had to be strapped to the bed to hold them down and all this other terrible stuff. But they were assuming it was fine just because you couldn't remember that something terrible happened to you the next day or something. Yeah. Oh, childbirth. (laughs) This is why I study this. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted so that now you don't have your flow back. No, no, that's fine because I'm done. It's now onto the racism and childbirth techniques and choices. Okay. So I'm going to touch on something that needs to be talked about, but I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in, so I can't perfectly comment on it. But a lot of the issues that we're talking about that happen during childbirth are only exasperated by racism that can occur during the process of your pregnancy and specifically during childbirth. So Black women in the U.S. are at greater risk of preterm birth and infant mortality compared to white women. And the U.S. already isn't doing great in terms of infant and maternal mortality. While there are a combination of factors that contribute to this, the interactions that women have with healthcare providers during their pregnancy and birth possibly contribute to these negative outcomes. It's true that low socioeconomic status Black mothers experience more mistreatment during birth than low socioeconomic low socioeconomic status white mothers, which um, kind of lends us to believe that there's more racism that maybe is being studied or is, was being expected. I did look into how concordant patient physician race works. So like what if you're a black mother and you have a black physician, does that increase the likelihood of a good birth and good birth outcomes? I couldn't find a lot on it, but I did find a nice PNAS article on it saying that Results examining 1.8 million hospital births in the state of Florida between 1992 and 2015, which is just a really long period that has many different components of how the racial makeup of our society was, Florida was, as well as medical professionals. The study suggested that newborn physician racial concordance is associated with a significant improvement in mortality for Black infants. Results further suggest that these benefits manifest during more challenging births and in hospitals that deliver more Black babies. We find no significant improvement in maternal mortality when birthing mothers share race with their physician. This is really interesting because you would hope for both, right? You would hope for childhood mortality to decrease as well as maternal mortality. So then this lends more questions about how institutional and lifelong racism kind of affects your birth, which is the last thing that you want. There's been a recent push to increase the role of midwives and doulas because they can help combat obstetric racism and increase the voices of Black mothers in the U.S. Doulas and midwives can aid mothers by providing them with knowledge about their pregnancy, assurance of having someone, quote unquote, like on their side and supporting them throughout the pregnancy, and giving them the courage to leave and find new care when they're faced with racism. The three major themes that emerged in a study of doulas and their role during pregnancies is that doulas can have similarities of race, culture, and experience that impact care as the patient. Doulas can provide birthing persons with support and resources beyond birth, so they're there prior to birth, during birth, and afterwards. And doulas are better equipped to recognize the institutional biases that exist in the healthcare system and try to mediate their effect on birthing persons. 
And also the training for the doulas is all centered around the woman rather than the training for doctors is all about how do we get the baby out? Like the end goal for doctors is a live birth. Whereas the end goal for a doula is a positive experience throughout birth and a live birth, obviously, but it is centered around making sure that the mother has a positive experience that she will then take into her life with her. Doulas were also associated with having greater breastfeeding initiation and lower risk of C-section compared to the general population in a study from Jefferson County, Alabama. So backtracking about 100 years, there used to be, doulas and midwives used to be a large part of the birthing experience, as Vicki mentioned, but between 1900 and 1935, there was a steep drop in the use of midwives. So this is a good quote that says, um... This change began in the 19th century due to the professionalization of obstetrics gynecology and an effort involving doctors campaigning against the knowledge systems of midwives, which were informal and involved the use of homeopathic remedies and tradition. This resulted in a steep drop in the use of midwives from approximately half of all births in 1900 to only 15% in 1935. So now we're approaching that time of like twilight sleep and medicalized birth that Vicky was talking about. There was this implication placed on midwives that they didn't know as much because they didn't have uh, training like doctors have, despite being women who probably already went through birth themselves and who had spent their entire lives studying this one thing. Mm-hmm. And right, they were trying to pit them against each other and then making the woman choose if the woman had the option to choose, which probably wasn't totally feasible in the early 1900s. No, definitely not. Once birth moved to the hospitals, it was like, well, now you give birth in the hospitals because this is where birth is. If you want to have birth at home, then you're risking it if you're staying with these midwives because they aren't trained. So it was putting the guilt on the mom if they wanted to stay. Um, So one thing that once you have the baby, you've gone through this birth and then you take it home is this big campaign around not co-sleeping. So co-sleeping and bed sharing is when you have the infant in the bed with you. We're not talking about here when you fall asleep with the baby on the sofa, which you should never do, or in a chair. This is talking just about in a bed or a safe environment. So the US and the UK are very much against bed sharing with links to SIDS and Um, infant suffocation and there's a lot of campaigns saying to not co-sleep and one of the problems with this is that there is a lot of cultural basis in co-sleeping so we're actually very weird in not sleeping with babies you'll find that the majority of cultures around the world do sleep with their babies in the early days it increases the heart rate, it regulates breathing. There's a lot of benefits towards sleeping with your baby. One of the biggest one is an increased chance of breastfeeding and maintaining breastfeeding duration. And there's a lot of work going on in the US by anthropologists such as James McKenna and in the UK by Helen Ball, looking at how the evolutionary aspects of co-sleeping and taking more of an evolutionary perspective oh no don't do that now laptop on the implications of understanding infant sleep development with this sudden infant death syndrome one of the things the problems that we have if we have these big campaigns that say absolutely no co-sleeping do not bed share is that then mothers especially those of different cultural backgrounds where this is a if you don't co-sleep with your baby, you're seen as a bad mother. Instead of getting information about how to do it safely, so no alcohol for the parents, no drugs for the parents, no smoking for both parents, no, do not sleep on a waterbed, and do not be extremely tired, which I know is a hard one to say to new parents, but this is if you haven't slept in about 72 hours. You know that extreme exhaustion where you can close your eyes standing up and fall asleep? That's what that one kind of means. But if you can avoid those things, there are ways that you can co-sleep safely, such as do not have a blanket over yourself, 
go into a C position around the baby. And we're not giving this information to mothers. Instead, we're just putting a blanket statement saying, do not do it. And then if health professionals are asking parents, oh, are you co-sleeping at all? It's, it's straight up, no, 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 we don't do that. We're not meant to do that. And then they're not getting the information how to do it safely for fear of being judged, for being a, oh, you're a bad mother. You could kill your baby by doing this. They don't talk about it with other mothers for this same reason of being judged. And it just creates this culture around co-sleeping that is so negative that people are just not willing to talk about it. And when I was speaking with my mom, she co-slept with both me and my sister, but never told anyone because she knew that she would be labeled as a bad mother. And she did her own research and looked it all up and found like the things that you should and you shouldn't do. And I mean, both of us we're fine. So she did manage to do it safely, but she is, she was a little bit disappointed that she wasn't able to get this from her midwife or her doctor because she was just too scared to ask. Um, so slight plug because this is my own research, but tying all this together, looking at what you should and shouldn't do, what you can and can't eat, where you should give birth, how you should give birth, breastfeeding, sleeping, blah, blah, blah. One of the ways that parents will get all this information is through baby books, which have seen a boom in the industry. There are baby books for everything. There's the more scientific ones saying like developmental stages. And then there are ones such as what to expect when you're expecting that are more middle ground. And then there's books that I won't aim for liability reasons, that are less advantageous and are more giving ways in which to stop your baby from crying, how to make your baby sleep more, how to make your baby a good baby and you be a good mum. And um, we and my, my advisor and I did research on these baby books, the ones that tell you how to how to make your baby better, basically. And we um, had 354 UK mothers with a baby aged zero to 12 months complete an online questionnaire about their use of baby books and the outcomes and their feelings around them. And we actually found that there is an association between use of infant parenting books that promote strict routines and maternal depression self-efficacy and parenting confidence. So we found that the more books that a mother had read during pregnancy and the early months of childcare, they were more likely to have postnatal depression. They were more likely to have lower self-efficacy and lower confidence in their abilities to be a good mother. They started to doubt themselves. They started to think that their infants were bad infants. And in a second study that we did with the same data set, we found that there was also an association between the baby care books and infant feeding, nighttime care, and maternal infant interaction choices. So once again, the more books these mothers had read, the less likely they were to, to um, breastfeed for a long period of time, the less likely they were to sleep in the same room as their infant, the more likely they were to let the baby cry it out and leave the baby crying for longer before calming them and the less interactions they had with their child. So we did find that these books that promote solutions to your babies, like we can help you soothe your baby, we can make your baby sleep through the night, the worse the mother felt about herself. So... They're not offering as much help as we hope they do. And then when this amazing solution that's presented to us in these books fail, instead of thinking, oh, maybe the book's not right, the women instead were saying, well, I'm obviously a bad mother and I have a bad child. The number, just the sheer number of parenting books and how they all yeah. compare is baffling. So we found that once they had read more than five books, that it didn't change. 
So there was a relationship between zero to one, one to two, two to three, three to four, and then five plus was just this negative number. So once you had read five books, there was no going back and there was no undoing it. I guess which makes sense. There's only so much information you can intake and only so much of it, so much of it that's going to apply to you and your lifestyle and how you perceive yourself and your child. Mm-hmm. So I think we can end it. I might splice on that quote of my mom. Yes, I think that would be a really nice one here. I think it just fully encompasses the feel that she had during her pregnancy that maybe not a lot of women can have now, which is that you really can do everything in your power to have a healthy pregnancy and do everything and adhere to all these societal standards and cultural standards and medicinal standards to have the best pregnancy possible. Me feeling like I was doing the right thing wasn't too hard at the time. Um, Don't, you know, definitely don't drink and don't smoke, right? If you weren't doing that, you were probably, you know, a pretty good mom. And what Vicki and I wanted to do with this YJBM podcast episode was try to show was to show mothers and soon to be mothers that there is a wealth of information that they can rely on and that there's changing standards for what makes a good pregnancy, but you're still a good mother because you're, it's ingrained in you to try your hardest during your pregnancy. And it's not necessary to meet every single one of these standards that you may feel is out there for you. So thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. But first, I would like to thank my friend Vicki, who you have heard this entire time, who has incredible research and who is the perfect person to have on this podcast for it. So thank you, Vicki. Um, thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being our home for YJBM and this podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center and Ryan for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. And thank you to the YJBM Editorial Board especially the EICs in charge of this issue, which were Amelia Haworth and Wei Ng. Thank you to the deputy editors in charge of the sex and reproduction issue, which were Mallory Ellingson and myself. And thank you to our listeners. Please tune into our podcast, wherever you get podcasts from, and check us out on Twitter at the YJBM. And feel free to email us at ygbm at yale.edu. 